Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Anna Lindo, the CEO and co-founder at Brave Health. Anna shares the company's unique approach to virtual behavioral health and how she stumbled upon tackling one of the most convoluted areas of healthcare, Medicaid. She's working to support some of America's most vulnerable populations. And in our conversation, I learned that at least one in every five Americans suffers from a mental illness, yet more than half don't get treatment or medication. She's working to change that. Let's take a listen. Anna, I am so grateful for this opportunity to spend time with you today. Thank you for joining us on the Hit Like a Girl podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thank you. I like to think about healthcare and health IT as this like 3,000 or 10,000 piece puzzle and we all kind of hold a piece of it. We're essentially trying to share with our audience like what is the full picture. Would you mind taking a minute to introduce yourself and talk about the piece of the healthcare IT puzzle mm-hmm. that you hold on to? Absolutely. Yes, I think. 10,000 piece puzzle is a good way of saying it. So I am the CEO and co-founder of Brave Health. We are a virtual behavioral health provider and engagement platform. And the way I would think about the puzzle piece that we hold is probably to describe us as like the engine that powers behavioral health outcomes, particularly for Medicaid beneficiaries. Oh, okay. 
Is it in all 50 states? Not yet. We're in 10 and counting. I would imagine working with Medicaid is a challenge. Can you, can you talk about like some of just the process or the journey of how you've gotten to where you are now? Sure. Well, a lot of paperwork, a lot of notarized documents. You get really familiar with the notary process, working with government programs. In some ways, it's challenging. In other ways, I think it's I think there are advantages. I think there are things that are really clear and transparent in working with Medicaid that are not as clear and transparent. So processes could be long or maybe they have a lot of steps or maybe they can take time between steps. But the processes and and even the reimbursement amounts, the you know goals that the states are being held to, the expectations that plans have for providers are all really clear. And that's something I love and have loved about working with Medicaid plans since when we started. And it's really been something we've had conviction around from when we started Brave is that unlike other parts of the healthcare universe and the the puzzle that can be both complicated and opaque, I would say, of course, working in Medicaid has complexity, but it's not really opaque. And I think that's a really cool thing, especially for people who are healthcare entrepreneurs, we get to look at the information and do our diligence and get access to things like fee schedules. And you could never get that from a commercial plan, you know? So it's something that um, has helped me from the beginning in just knowing how we wanted to approach the problems that we're working on, where we wanted to start, which regions we might be able to have the most, you know, success in. Those were things we could look at and make informed decisions on, which is a real benefit, I think, you know, in any sort of, entrepreneurial pursuit when you're attempting to do something that maybe hasn't been done before, lack of information is one of your enemies, right? The less you, right. So the less that you know about the field that you're going into, the less you can deduce, the harder it is to get a sense of the possible outcomes or the possible pitfalls or the possible opportunities. I think it's something I didn't totally realize about Medicaid until I had worked with multiple different facets of the health insurance universe that there is so much more transparency than you might get in other areas. Yeah. So I don't follow the state rules as closely, but I have definitely kept my finger on the pulse of the federal rules for about the last decade or so. And one thing that I like about it is, to your point, they give you an idea of what their vision is and what their goals are and how the steps that they're going to take and how to get... That was actually part of the reason why I chose to get into health IT from the get-go because they had outlined their strategic goals. This is what our plan is for the next five years. Because you do work in the um, EHR world, right? Yeah, I'm a subject matter expert in the quality payment program and specifically on the the merit-based incentive payment side. And so that is something that like, there's a lot of deep, they took three government programs and then melded them together and then like kind of helping decide, okay, what's our path forward? And they give you so much information around like, okay, what are our thoughts about it? What's the feedback that we've gotten? And what's our commentary around the feedback? And then, you know, coming up with a plan from there. So if you're, if you're paying attention, it can give you some real business insights. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there are similarities at the state level and one of the sometimes challenging elements, but also, again, opportunities is that there is variability state by state. So there are similar elements in terms of knowing where lawmakers and regulators are headed and how that's going to impact the delivery of care and reimbursement for it on the state level in the Medicaid universe as well. 
And it's interesting because not every state acts in the same way on the same timeline. And so you might have situations where something becomes permissible in a state and there's a lot of opportunity to try something and not every state's adopted and that's okay. Um, and it gives us the ability as people who are trying to innovate in this space to look for those opportunities and do cool things in the states where certain things are being experimented with. And so I love that. I love the variability and the possibility that that affords us. So can you tell me more about Brave Health in particular? What are the products and services that you all provide? Absolutely. So as a behavioral health provider, we're offering the services that help people improve their mental and behavioral health and, you know, really with an eye towards their health overall. So we have, you know, your services like therapy and psychiatry. We do a lot of work with individuals engaging them in care to begin with and then keeping them engaged in care. But we're looking specifically across a few different sort of specific axes that tie in a really important way, I believe, into a lot of the broader healthcare discussions that are going on. So this coming back to the concept of healthcare as a puzzle, we strongly believe that behavioral health is always a piece of a puzzle, right? Your behavioral health is part of your overall health. And when we think about behavioral health as fitting into the public health picture, it can inform some of the decisions we make and what we prioritize. So for us, we started when we first launched really focused on medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, which I'm really passionate about and which is really important. But very quickly, we expanded to treat other behavioral health conditions, really because we saw OUD as part of a bigger picture. And health plans in our patients were saying, hey, can you work with us on some of the other conditions that we're seeing? One of the first ones that came up that we spent a lot of time and focus on and that we still really focus on in some of our markets is serious mental illness. Folks who have moderate to higher, you know, when folks get into that higher acuity side of things, we do work with a lot of folks with moderate acuity as well. But serious mental illness has been a place where we've been able to develop some programs that really work for those audiences and work really, really closely with some of the health plans that have specialized teams and even specialized benefits for SMI. And that's been a really cool experience just because I think it's an area that doesn't get a ton of attention and doesn't get a ton of focus historically or historically hasn't maybe gotten as much just, you know, focus that is really needed. So that's been really fantastic. And then there's a couple other areas that we've started to develop around, you know, again, things that affect communities, right? When we say we're a community mental health provider, our job is to work on the things that are going to be really impactful for the communities that we're in. So those include, but are not limited to, maternal mental health, working with adolescents, and now in 2022, starting to work with kids even a little bit younger than adolescents, and then also working really closely with primary care and with hospitals and folks who are transitioning from a higher level of care. And you'll hear there's kind of a theme throughout these. One, that theme of what do communities need? What do we think is going to have a really big impact? And two, what do we think we can do to support the bigger puzzle? Not just to operate on our own, but also to fit into what other providers are doing, whether that's a hospital in a community, whether that's a primary care provider or a pediatrician, whether that's an OBGYN, whether that's a health plan case manager. The things that we work on and the areas that we focus on tend to be areas that touch one of those categories I just listed. And that lets us get different and better results, I think, than if we were to try to operate outside of the system altogether. I'm really curious to hear about how you're supporting moms and adolescents. Can we talk about those two in particular? Sure, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I can't emphasize enough how important I think 
both populations are for us to be thinking about um, as a community health organization. In terms of moms, I think it's both working with health plans who tend, you know, our experience has been the health plans that we work with do a fantastic job of connecting the women that they're working with to resources and making sure that the pregnant people that they support have the opportunity to connect to resources, not just after pregnancy, but during pregnancy, both of which are important in terms of supporting mental health. And then for adolescents, I think, you know, we're at, very sadly, I think we're at the beginning of really big effort we need to make as a society. This is not something that is going to change overnight. It's not something that's going to become fixed, right? It's going to require a lot of different contributions from different places, both on the ground and virtually. Obviously, we deliver care virtually, but, you know, I think there's certainly a capacity issue. So one of the first things we're trying to do is simply create access. But then there's also, you know, the need to make sure that we're offering a variety of services that are needed. So one piece, like I said, that we like to think about and focus on is figuring out ways to support and work with pediatricians, Mm -hmm. but then also to work with families. So one of the services we offer is family therapy. I think it's important to think about, okay, what are we doing not just for the individual, but also for the caregivers and caregivers in their lives? I love that. I mean, I think that's always been important, but especially now in the age that we're in, in, you know, pandemic land, I can imagine that your services are well utilized and hopefully like more people are taking advantage of, of your offering. Has there been much of a change as, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, through going through COVID and can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Brave was actually a fully virtual organization before COVID which was kind of interesting. We had this really fortunate situation in which we didn't have to change our care delivery model, which was good because it meant that we could just really focus on meeting the need, which was immense and continues to be immense. So our model didn't change, but what changed was the world around us, right? In many, many, many ways, many too many to count, but specifically as it relates to virtual care, I think two things changed. One was health plans began reimbursing for services and talking about services and supporting the use of services via telehealth, even some that hadn't before. And then the other thing that changed was patient behaviors. So whether that was a question of somebody who might not have been interested in telehealth before, or maybe was open to it, but just hadn't had an occasion to try it, those shifting behaviors, both on the side on the side of plans and on the side of patients, led to obviously a shift in adoption. And for us, that meant like 20x growth in a year. But it wasn't necessarily, you know, what was interesting is that first I thought we would see a lot of sort of situational stuff, like people coming to us as a response to what was going in their, on in their lives because of the pandemic. But it wasn't as much that. And it, it really hasn't been as much that. It's been more people seeking care that now feels available to them that may not have before. Maybe it was available to them before and they didn't have awareness or perhaps inclination, or maybe it wasn't. Like there are health plans that did not reimburse for telebehavioral health services before the pandemic and now do. So it's been an absolute paradigm shift that I think is never going to go back to whatever quote unquote normal was before. But I like to say necessity is the mother of adoption. Like, It's not so much that something new was invented. It's that the way that we use something that already existed. For sure. 
I mean, I, so I'm a therapist, very happy with my relationship that I've had with her. And because of the pandemic, we transitioned from meeting in person to meeting online. And that is, has been a game changer slash lifesaver to have somebody who's available kind of, you know, I have an appointment. I don't have to rearrange my day to like be there in person or sit through traffic or that sort of, you know, any of that. And, uh, I'm hopeful that we, like, I think we probably could go back to in-person, but I don't think either one of us have any intention of doing that because it's so effective. And I was curious when you said about family therapy, is that also something that happens virtually now? It can be. And I think one of the things that's cool is when we think about delivering services to people who may not live in the same house or even city or even region of a state or even state, you know, we operate in multiple states now. There are ways that we can use telehealth to our advantage, do things that wouldn't have been possible before. So for instance, I'm thinking about a particular therapist on our team who's a marriage and family therapist who was working with a couple who has a blended family. And for a period of time, the couple, you know, were living in the same home. And then at some point they started living in separate homes And she was able to continue working with them, even though they were living in completely different parts of the state and work on, you know, the issues that they were experiencing in their marriage and in their relationship and things they wanted to work on. So in service of the possibility of living again in the same place in the future. And those are the kinds of things where there always are going to be elements of care delivery that we want to have happen face-to-face in an office. And I am the first one to say that telehealth is not the perfect thing for every single type of care delivery. But I think what even I didn't fully realize until we started to do, you know, work in a lot more use cases than we had seen before. Even I didn't fully realize that there are times when virtual care affords things that wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And I think that's exciting, especially as we think about the benefits of continuity and the fact that, you know, you could have maybe a youth in the foster system who lives in different places throughout a state and having consistent relationships with their care, their you know, care providers is really helpful. So there are things that telehealth allows us that, you know, they may seem subtle, but they can actually have a huge impact and they wouldn't have been possible otherwise. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, like, that's where you get to spend your time and make an impact because it's very needed. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes, we're really fortunate to get to take on some really cool problems. So can I ask about you personally? Absolutely. Did did 10-year-old Anna know that she was going to be the CEO of a behavioral health company? (laughs) Did you have any clue what you wanted to do when you grew up? I really don't remember having any clue that what I wanted to do when I grew up. Maybe writing. I've always liked to write. And I've spent time, I studied creative writing in college and still love to write and always wrote. But I don't think I even understood what being a CEO was, even until like not that long before I became one. I didn't have designs on starting a company, I didn't have, you know, a vision of myself as a CEO. It took other people saying to me, hey, I think there's this job that might work for you. Actually, the first person to ever suggest this path to me was the CHRO at um, the company that I was at before starting Brave, who now um, is our CHRO at Brave. And I remember being really surprised, like, wow, really? You think I could do that? 
And that conversation changed my life because I think I started to believe it was possible. So that brings up a few things for me, but I want to know first, I guess, what are some of the things that you've learned as CEO that maybe you had no clue were going to be part of your day to day or something that you were, you know, needed to be an expert on? You know, surprise, this is on your plate now. Like, what did you learn? (laughs) I'm trying to think about the best way to characterize the difference between being a CEO and being operations leader, which I did before this, Mm -hmm. um, and what changed. And I think one thing I can't emphasize enough is importance in any operations leadership role of being able to derive insights from data. Like that is something that, you know, I took statistics in college, I didn't, you know, have any problems with quantitative skills, particularly, but the journey over the past probably 10 years in my career has been getting deeper and deeper and better at better and better and better at understanding how to use data to know what's happening in a business. And that kind of manifests itself in so many ways from financial measures to strategy discussions to leading the team and painting a picture about what's going on based in the data that you have to clinical outcomes. It's a skill that I wish I had started developing sooner. And so I I talk about this a lot with the team because I think it's not necessarily something that we as a society focus on a lot in school. Like I remember learning how to prove if something was a triangle or not, but not really spending time saying, okay, let's look at this data set and, and see what it tells us. And I didn't really get training in that until I was in the professional world and then more in a master's program in psychology. You know, you're doing a lot of work looking at evidence and data sets, but you know, I still think this is a journey I'm going to be on for the rest of my life and hopefully honing forever and hopefully making my dad, who is a statistics teacher, proud. Oh, I'm sure. He must be so proud of you. Are you kidding me? You're reminding me of um, a class that I took in high school. And it was like, we had a like a visiting professor that came from England. And so it was like new on the curriculum and it wasn't traditional math. The problem, it was problem solving. It was a whole year of problem solving that they would give you all kinds of different world word problems or what, oh, and you just had yeah. to be able to like, okay, this isn't your typical equation. And now just like yes. for the solve for X, it was, was this the inquiry based model? I believe so. I mean, this is years and years ago, but it was, if it was, <laughs> My dad will be very excited to hear us talking about this. Yeah, it, it was so <laughs> great. Like, I can't tell you how, how much I gained from that class, probably more than I would have had I taken trigonometry, for example, you know? Right. Yes. Yes. You might not have learned as much about tangents and cosines, but you're definitely learning things that are applicable in your life. Yeah. And every day it, it was just like, okay, there's missing, not just the conversation of like, what can you glean from whatever data you're given, but what can you also glean from missing data and what is, what would you need there? to know to make a decision? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that ties into, I think another learning about this role and really, and, my roles in operations leadership before this is I think it's surprising and something to get used to how many decisions you have to make. Getting into the pace of making decisions constantly, not always with all the information and being able, just like you said, to try to identify the information you would need to have confidence and knowing that, you know, we're living in a world where we're doing something that hasn't been done before. Well, you're not going to have all the information. That's a journey 
it's a journey that I think it can be tiring. I mean, it can be tiring to start to think about how it is your job to make decisions all the time. And I am so, so, so grateful to the best team because you couldn't do it without, I mean, our clinical leaders are unbelievable. Our operations leaders are unbelievable. Our talent and HR leaders are unbelievable. And the work that they do allows me to do the work that I do. But having bootstrapped the company and starting it by myself, you know, I was by myself working on it day to day when I started. I appreciate that so much more because I realized that there's the work. And of, of course, you know, the work becomes more than one person can do. But there's also this parallel sort of body of work that's around decision making that is also more than one person can do. And the biggest gift that your team can give you, which my team absolutely gives me, is the trust that they're making great decisions because that lets you free up your mental energy to make the decisions and ask the questions about the things that you truly are the best person to decide. Well, so how do you deal with overwhelm? Because if like there's, there's a major decision-making fatigue, like that's real. And one is obviously like leaning on your team, but you have, did you handpick them? How did you build that trust with them and from the, from the get-go? We have had a really interesting leadership team development journey, which has been fantastic. We're Almost all of the people on our leadership team started in a part-time or consulting way, including me. Like I was bootstrapping and running a consulting business when I first started Brave. And so I think that's one of the ways you build trust with people is just more time knowing them, getting to know them, which has been so, so, so cool and is not something that you often have the luxury for. So I feel like that's been fantastic. And, you know, it's an ongoing... I don't think the journey of how you build trust with your team is ever over, right? Like I have people that I get to work with now who I've worked with for 10 years and that is incredible. And other people who I've worked with for a short amount of time. And the amazing thing though about doing work that you feel is important, which I think we all at Brave do, is it does bond you quickly because you know you have a shared mission. Yeah, I love that. So when you're thinking about, I love asking this question of like, what advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? Like somebody who is Mm. just starting their professional journey or you, like, what would you tell yourself? Yeah, I do. And there was a period of time where I was a career coach and I told people this. And so I do tell people this and I wish I had told it to myself. You have so little time. We have so little time, right? We have so little time just on earth, right? Like think about the work that you really, or the area that you feel is important, the the things that you really feel like would make you proud to work on them. And whatever you want to bring to that field, that can be an evolution, right? Because you have to learn and, and grow in whatever field you're in. But I think I spent a lot of time sort of like letting things happen to me. Mm-hmm. reacting to what was put in front of me and choosing from a limited universe of options as if they were the only ones like, well, I could do this, this, or this. And my favorite of the, those three is this. Yeah, There were times when I didn't do that, but the times when I did that, the times when I reacted to a limited, an artificially limited user universe of options, I always at some point felt like, how did I get here? Like, did, what led me here? And the times when I said, I think... X thing is important or X thing is appealing, even in a small way, right? Like I think I want to work with a team of people in a smaller organization or a newer organization. That would make, that would be really cool. Like then, you know, it's intentional. You've made the choice. And it doesn't always mean that you're going to love every minute of the job. And it doesn't always mean that things will unfold in the short term, the way that you 
that you wanted them to, but you'll be able to look back and say, I understand how A got me to B got me to C. Totally. And I've definitely had some things where I didn't make the choice that in retrospect would have been the quote unquote right choice, but I can look back and say, I made it with conviction. Yeah, you know why you did that. I've been having some great conversations lately around like how do I identify your own limiting beliefs? You know, how do you how do you figure mm-hmm. out like what is within the realm of possibility? And it's just been a little bit mind-blowing to think about how we don't necessarily need to trust everything that we think. Like there's so many possibilities that are probably bigger and better than you ever would have imagined. You just haven't imagined it yet, you know? Yeah. I wear a necklace that says BTE every day and it stands for better than expected because most of our, you know, cognitive distortions are going to lead us towards thinking about the worst possible scenario or the thing that could go wrong. Our minds don't typically show us, well, what if this was better than I thought it would Mm -hmm. be? Like, what if something equally outsized and amazing happens to the outsized and negative thing that I'm imagining. Right. That's my little reminder. No, I think it's a great one. I I've been trying to help, you know, to remind myself to do the same because it's like, it's easy to imagine all of the ways something could go wrong (laughs) or like whatever dead disaster is looming, but like, it's not as easy to imagine like, Oh, things could go way better than I ever either anticipated or expected or planned for. And I got to be open for that path. And if and we really think about, too. if we think about it, we have so, I have so many examples, even just in the, the lifetime of this company where things took turns that were way better than I possibly could have imagined. People showed up, you know, like you happened to sit next to this person at a lunch who said, Oh, by the way, I have this opportunity. Like I happened to get connected to person who had gone to the same school as me through a former professor who ended up being employee one at Brave. And I never in a million years would have thought that that is how things would have shaken out. Like there are a million ways anything could turn out. And I'm certainly able to think of a bunch of, ex- of examples of when it wasn't what I thought it would, would have happened and it was better. Yeah. And you can't necessarily plan for it either. Like Absolutely. Was, yeah. yeah. No surprise. Well, Anna, I, I think we're probably running out of time, but I love, I love talking with you. I feel like I've learned a lot. Likewise. And I wonder <laughs> like, if people want to work with you or follow you or get in, you know, get involved with Brave Health, what would be the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Uh, well, check us out on LinkedIn. We have a page there and our website is bebravehealth.com, B-E-B-R-A-V-E-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. And um, we're looking forward to connecting with you. Awesome. Well, thank you again for this time. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Joy. This was so much fun. Nice to meet you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, 
they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com.